moving up to Genesis 6, and we're going to be looking at Genesis 6, uh, a couple of verses, and then we're going to be looking at Genesis 9, some verses in that. As you saw last week, we did not focus so much on creation, but on the covenant associated with creation. Equally, we're not going to focus so much on the flood, but on the covenant associated with the flood. And we're using this rubric of covenant to try to get a handle on all of the uh, Old Testament and the New as well. Now, I didn't pick uh, Noah, uh, knowing what the weather would be like here in (laughs) South Florida, but it is appropriate. And I also want to mention, uh, we uh, somebody asked if we could live stream the sermons, and uh, I was a little bit reticent to do that because... If I do it just by audio and I say something particularly inappropriate or incorrect or have some major gaffe, I can go and edit it out before I put it up online. But if it's live stream, I can't do that. But uh, last week we did it for the first time, and uh, a lady we know, a dear friend of ours in Guadalajara who's a cancer survivor, uh, she was not able to go to church, and she joined in with us. And so this is not to encourage anybody to stay home, even on rainy days, but uh, it is to do what we can to get the word out, and you can catch up not just audio, but also video. So uh, we're in Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read only two verses of Genesis chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, and also uh, chapter 9, verses 8 to 17. So hear the word of the Lord, Genesis 6. uh, 17 and 18, and then 9, 8 to 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And now jumping over to Genesis chapter 9, picking up in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. For it is every beast, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. All the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. One of the things that I used to enjoy doing when I was a pastor in Mexico for 20-some years was to take the catechism class. This was the class where older children or young people, teenagers, were preparing to make their own profession of faith. And I loved to work with the children. 
I also like teaching seminary and so on, but the children are a special delight, and it also is a great test for teachers. If you can teach Bible and theology to children, then you know what you're talking about, and you're doing a decent job at teaching. So it's a a wonderful challenge for a teacher, and I always enjoyed that. Um, And I was teaching one day the children, and uh, we were talking about three different concepts. Uh, We were talking about justice, we were talking about mercy, and we were talking about grace. So these are elevated concepts for for older children or for teenagers. And uh, I was trying to come up with an example. And I explained that justice is is getting what you deserve. It's fairness. And mercy is, when you do something wrong, not getting the, the punishment that you deserve. And grace is getting the opposite of the punishment that you deserve. So I said, okay, kids. I said, let's imagine that you were playing and you broke your neighbor's window with a ball. What would be justice? They thought about it and they said, well, justice would be, we'd have to pay for the window. Good. I said, what would be mercy? They thought about it and they said, well, mercy would be not having to pay for the window. Excellent. I said, okay, what would be grace? And they thought about that a little bit. And one of them said, not only would we not have to pay for the window, but the owner would take us out for ice cream. (laughs) And that's one of the best illustrations or explanations of grace I think I have ever heard. And that's what I love about teaching children is because they end up teaching me and illuminating things. But we're going to talk today about the covenant of grace, but we should go back before chapter 6 and ask the question, when did grace start? When do we find grace starting in the Bible? Well, when did grace start in my illustration? Grace entered the picture when the window was broken. That's when grace starts, when something gets broken. There's no need for grace before that. Justice is fine. There's no need for mercy either. But grace enters when the window is broken. So let's go back and find out in the story when the window was broken. In Genesis chapter 3, we talked about last week what is called the covenant of works or the covenant of life that was given to the original humans. And we didn't emphasize what happened after that, but as you know, they didn't pass the test. And so what we find is after their failure, their rebellion against God's word, in verse 9, or rather, let's read verse 8 of chapter 3 of Genesis. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? I think we could take this as the first manifestation of grace. The first spoken words of grace in the Bible. Because God could have said many other things, couldn't He? They knew things were amiss. And they were trying to hide themselves and flee from God. But God looked for them. They were fleeing and He showed them mercy. He showed them grace. Did they deserve for God to pursue them? No. They were getting the opposite of what they had merited. Instead of letting humans go their own way, which is what they were trying to do, God pursued them. Instead of meeting out eternal justice upon them, He sought them out. The first manifestation of grace. And in addition to that, still in chapter 3, we have, even as God is pronouncing sentence upon the creatures, 
there's a beautiful and enigmatic verse in verse 15. And this is often taken to be the first explanation, suggestion, declaration of the gospel, the good news. And in verse 15 it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is speaking to the the serpent representing Satan. So he's setting up this this conflict between the offspring of the the serpent and uh, the offspring of the woman. And eventually one would come born of the woman and there would be this titanic battle the son of the woman would be bruised in the process, but Satan's head would be crushed as well. So here we have the beginning of grace. And after the entrance of sin into the world, all positive dealings with God had to be on the basis of His grace. They could no longer be on the basis of justice. They could be only on the basis of His free favor toward sinners, which is a handy definition for grace. From the moment that the human sinned, the only hope that we have is in His goodwill, not in our good performance. So even though we haven't yet gotten to an announcement of the covenant of grace, we're already in the period of grace, which has extended up until this time. Now when we talk about covenants, we can divide things a couple different ways. And we're going to do that. We're going to talk about the covenant of works or life, which we mentioned last week. And today we're going to begin introducing the covenant of grace. And so how many covenants there are? There are two covenants, basically, of works or life and of grace. But we will see that the covenant of works was in the first chapters, uh, specifically in chapter 2. And then we have sin enter in chapter 3. Well, what about the rest of the Bible? It's the covenant of grace. But there are various manifestations, various installments, various announcements of the covenant of grace. And we're going to look at the first one today, which is to Noah. And then we will look at to Abraham. And then we will look at to Moses. And then we'll look at to David. And then we'll look at to the prophets, the new covenant. And then we'll look at in each time how they're, they're fulfilled in the New Testament. So there are two covenants, but the second covenant of grace has various installments. And so we will be talking about the covenant with Noah, the covenant with David, and so on. Now, when we get to chapter 6 of Genesis, in verses 17 and 18, we find this announcement that God was going to send destruction on the world because the wickedness of humans was such that, tragically and poignantly, he says that he is sorry that he made humans. That's how bad it had gotten. And he was going to wipe the the surface of the earth clean, and he was going to start over with one man who found grace, who found favor in his eyes, and that man was Noah. And I'm going to to recurse all of the flood. I think many of you, or most of you, or maybe all of you know the, the, the history of the flood. But we find here this first mention of the word covenant in Scripture. Contrast between verse 17 and verse 18 of chapter 6. Before, behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, in chapter 9, he explains this more clearly, but here, even in this first part, we can, we can determine what are some aspects of covenant and what are some aspects of covenant of grace particularly. 
The first aspect is this. Who establishes the covenant here? God does. And so we ought not to think about covenants, even though the word is used sometimes in Scripture between humans making covenants with each other, but we ought not to think of our covenant, the covenants with God, as kind of a sit-down, hammer-out-the-details-with-two-parties-sitting-at-the-same-table. We will always find that God comes and He establishes His covenant. So we ought not to think of uh, negotiation here. We ought to think more like a superpower establishing a covenant with a tiny nation. The difference in, in that situation and in the, God's, the, the covenants that God establishes, establishes is this. When a superpower establishes, dictates terms of a covenant or a pact with a tiny nation, uh, who gets the favorable terms of the covenant? The superpower. But we will see when God establishes covenants with us, we get the favorable terms. So that is the difference here. So that's the first thing. This is a, a sovereign covenant. This is something that God does for us. The second thing is this. Who is included in the covenants? Well, what we see here is he made this covenant with Noah and with Noah's sons. And we will see this pattern throughout Scripture. If we think about last week, with whom was the covenant of life? Well, we find out that it was with Adam and Eve. And as it turns out, even though it wasn't specifically stated, it turns out that it was with all of their natural posterity as well. How do we know that? Well, because all of their natural posterity, their natural children and grandchildren and so on, entered into the, the, the punishment of that covenant, which was death. So, with you and with your children. We see that that pattern here. And what is the focus here before the flood? And we will see a difference before the flood and after the flood of the focus of this covenant with Adam. Uh, I'm sorry, with Noah. The covenant with Noah before the flood, he says, I am doing this, I am making this covenant in order to do what? In order to save you. So this is a saving covenant with Noah and his family. He's going to save them by means of the ark. Now, that's before the flood. We're going to jump over the flood, depending on your knowledge of what happened there. And now we're going to pick up the story after the flood in chapter 9. Now, what we find in chapter 9, I didn't read these verses yet, but in chapter 9, verse 1, let me read that at least. And it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have we heard something like that before? Yeah. Yes, we heard that in chapter 1, didn't we? And then, the fear of you, verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Have we heard something like that before? We heard it in chapter 1, although there's a new element. There's an ominous element uh, because now the, the dominance is a fearful dominance. They will be afraid of you. But once again, God is repeating that you humans have charge of the other animals. So we might expect, we might expect now, since God seems to be re-inaugurating the creation, we might expect another covenant of life, right? We might expect Him to say, okay, now here's the tree again, go at it. Here's the tree again, and these are, this is my, my commandment, don't eat of it, and the day you eat of it, you will die. If you don't eat of it, that you will be confirmed in eternal life. But we don't find that. We don't find a re-inauguration of the covenant of works or the covenant of life. Why not? It's too late for that. We're beyond that. 
we have now entered into the period of grace. So that any positive dealing, as I said, between God and us is going to be on the basis of His goodwill, His free favor. And what we find here in this second interaction with Noah about the covenant is that God extends the covenant. He's already said it's for you and your sons, your family, but now He extends it. Look at verse 8 of chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. So far, we've already heard that arrangement. Then he says, And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. And he repeats that a number of times. It is for you, your children, your offspring, and for every other creature. So he's extending this covenant. It was a saving covenant for Noah and his family. But now, what is the... What is the purpose? What is the focus of the covenant after the the flood? He says in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. A different focus now, a different aspect to this covenant with Noah. First, it was covenant of salvation for Noah and his family, and now it extends to all living creatures And it's a covenant of preservation that never again would God flood the earth and destroy all living creatures by means of a flood. So, uh, it's it's grown in its scope. It's not just salvation for one family, but it's preservation for the entire earth. Now, this preservation indicates what we see to this day. And it's something that we, we take for granted all the time. And that is the continuance of the earth and the ability for all creatures to enjoy its benefits. This is what is called common grace. This is grace that is for everyone. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard that it was said, this is verse 43, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now here's the point. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is remarkable, isn't it? Have you noticed that? That rain falls on your lawn and it falls on your neighbor's lawn? I mean, sometimes maybe you're right at the line, and that happens here in South Florida where it's raining here and it's not raining there. That happens. But, but normally in a zone, it doesn't distinguish, doesn't it? The sun shines on everybody. The rain falls on everybody. That's God's common grace that it comes out of this, this promise that He gave to Noah, to his offspring, and to all living creatures. But let's think about this. How does preservation serve the purposes of salvation? God is going to have a plan that He's going to work out, a plan of salvation through the rest of Scripture. On what does that depend? Well, it depends on the earth being here in the first place, doesn't it? So, no earth, no plan of salvation that gets fulfilled. And so, this general covenant of common grace serves the purpose of special grace to those whom God uh, saves. Now, another thing, 
uh, we ought to notice here is that in some of the covenants that we will be looking at, there are some specific requirements for those who receive the covenant. But the remarkable thing about this first covenant is we see that it is entirely gracious. God takes on Himself to do everything. He doesn't say, well, the earth will continue if you do this or that. He says, I will do this. I promise I will keep the earth going. I will never again send a flood of destruction on all the earth. All of the, the responsibility is on God. And so we see the gracious nature of this covenant shining through. And like other covenants, and here, very clearly, this covenant has a visible sign. That's an aspect of covenants that we will see all through Scripture. It's not called a sign, but if you go back to the original covenant, we could take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to be a visible emblem, a visible sign of that covenant. Now we have specifically something that is called a sign, the sign of the covenant. And what is it? The rainbow. And if you look at verse 12, it says, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Is it continuing to this day? Continuing to this day. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And there he repeats that the waters will never again flood the earth. Verse 16 reiterates, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. For whom is this bow? It's interesting. This bow serves as the sign of the covenant. It is a reassurance to us, but it is also a reminder to God. And this is a very interesting sign, and it's a very appropriate sign. One, it's appropriate because of its placement. Where is it? Well, it's between heaven and earth. Between heaven and earth. Now, supposedly it touches the earth somewhere, but, uh, but generally we think of it as being between us and the heavens, between us and God, so we can see it, and we can be assured, and He can see it, and He can be reminded of His promise. It's also uh, placed in the threatening clouds, isn't it? There's an ominous sky, and there is this beautiful, multicolored arc in the sky. And to this day, when that happens, what do we do? We all get excited about that, don't we? We run out. If there's a, if there's a, a bow in the sky, a rainbow, we say, Hey, Sandy, hey, look, look at the rainbow. We try to take pictures of it and we, we tell our friends because it's so, so contrasting. We have this threatening sky and then we have this beautiful multicolored arc. It's also appropriate because of its timing. When does it show up? Does it ever show up when there is an absolutely clear sky? It doesn't. It doesn't show up when there Blue sky, sky and clear sailing, does it? It only shows up when there is something that is threatening us. When the skies are dark and ominous and threatening. That's when it shows up. So in its placement and in its timing, it is a, it is a very appropriate sign for this particular covenant. 
But there's something else about this that some scholars have suggested, and I find it to be fairly compelling. You will find in this translation that they didn't call it a rainbow, they called it simply a bow. Now, in Hebrew, as in English, it's the same word. The same word for bow in the skies and bow and arrow, which is a hunting weapon, or in those days it was very much of a, a battle weapon, uh, it's the same word. And so uh, he, also, he also calls it my bow. This is interesting. He says, this is the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature after you. Okay, and then verse 13, I have set what? My bow. So it it, it looks like this is something that God has in his possession already. And he is saying, I am going to take my bow and I am going to place it in the heavens. What's he doing? He's laying aside his weapon. He's laying it aside. So not only is it beautiful, not only is it timely, not only is it between heaven and earth, but it is a, a renunciation of warfare against all humanity. God is, going, is saying, I am laying aside my weapon against humanity. Now, humanity's response to the covenant of works was to rise up in rebellion against God. To rise up in opposition against God and to make itself God's enemy. And here, in this first manifestation of the covenant of grace, what does God do? He lays down His weapon unilaterally. He lays down His weapon in the face of a declared enemy. And you you might think that that would leave God vulnerable. Because who does that? Who, in the midst of a declared enemy who has risen up in rebellion against you, who lays aside his weapons? Well, God did. And it looks like that's left him vulnerable. And in fact, many centuries later, when God once again walked among humans as he did in the garden, but this time he walked as a human among humans, humans took up their weapons against him. Once they took up stones to stone him. They also bore clubs and spears against him. They took a whip to his back. And then they used that cruelest of all weapons that they had devised at the time. They used the cross against him. Where do we see the manifestation of God's grace? We see the manifestation of God's grace in the preservation of all things, the fact that we are still here. But most clearly and most markedly, we see the manifestation of God's grace in the death of His Son. Because in the death of His Son, He laid aside His weapons and allowed humanity to focus their weapons on Him. Now, as we saw last week, In the covenant of works, God said, if you disobey, you will die. What happened with that threat? God never revoked it. Instead, what He did, He took that punishment upon Himself. God also, in that covenant of works, implied, if you obey perfectly, you will have eternal life. And what did He do with that promise of eternal life based on perfect obedience? He never revoked it. 
but rather what He did is He fulfilled it Himself. So what do we have in the covenant of grace? We don't have a a plan B. We have rather the fulfillment of the covenant of life, but not by us, but by the One who lived that perfect life of obedience and by that One who suffered the consequences of death. What then is the covenant of grace for us? It is the covenant of life fulfilled. The possibility once again that we might live forever. We, if we will but believe the promises that God gives to us. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the rain that is appropriately reminding us of Your grace to us. Because this rain is watering the earth and we've also been protected. It hasn't risen up and washed us away. It hasn't once again cleansed the earth. We thank You, Father, for the bow that we often see in the sky. And we thank You that You put that aside and no longer declared warfare against all of humanity. But we thank You even more so that You allowed humanity in its ignorance and in its malice to declare warfare against You and took that most heinous of acts and turned it into the fulfillment of the covenant of works that we might enter into Your presence not on the basis of our obedience, but on the basis of Christ. Not fulfilling it by our death, but having it fulfilled for us by the death of Christ. And You call on us simply to believe that we might live. And we pray, O God, for all here that we would believe and for all who hear this message of good news today that we would believe it and live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.